Ireland is the place where whiskey found its name. The home of whiskey distilling. The country that has produced whiskey for longer than anywhere else. Irish whiskey is defined by its people and places. The craftsmanship of our distillers and blenders. Our celebrated home on the island of Ireland, on the very edge of Europe, where the continent meets the roar of the Atlantic Ocean. Irish whiskey has a depth and diversity unrivaled among other whiskies, many unique characters, but one shared spirit. There's always a new Irish whiskey brand or expression to savor on the shelves of your off-license liquor store and online. Discover the depth and diversity of Irish whiskey. Good evening, everybody. Very welcome to episode two of our new podcast series, Discover Irish Whiskey. And in this evening's episode, we're talking about how new distilleries are really shaking up the market and their approach to Irish whiskey and how they plan to differentiate themselves from the current marketplace. And we'll talk about some of their pains and some of their gains during the journeys. And co-hosting the show with me, is John Cashman. So let's bring in John. Hello, how nice. are you? Yeah, yeah, nice bit of nice bit of sunshine, evening sunshine here on a May day. So happy out, happy out. But uh, really looking forward to this evening's show. You know, we had a great opener yeah. last week, I suppose. Um, you know, a lot of people were were contacting me through, throughout the week saying they thoroughly enjoyed it and said, "How are you going to follow it up this week?" You know. So uh, I think I think we have a pretty good panel um, uh, ahead of us today. So yeah, looking forward to. Um, yeah, we four speakers this week. Um, one more, one more from last week, and uh, our first guest this evening is um, Alex Coiningham of Slane Distillery. Alex's association with Irish whiskey, I suppose, in a professional capacity, anyway, um, dates back to the late nineties when he accepted a place on the Ibec Run um, Export Orientation Program, working for a leading Irish distillery in Australia. I met him soon after that. I was on I was on the same program probably about a year before Alex, I think. Um, on his return, Alex got involved with some of the family enterprises. And uh, Alex, in partnership with his father, Henry, um, launched Slane Castle Whiskey back in 2009. The story following that is uh, is well is well known. And come 2012, Alex and Henry started looking into the possibility of establishing their own distillery on the grounds of their ancestral home of Slane Castle. Um, in partnership with Brown Foreman, they uh, they they achieved that goal and launched. Um, this, the new Slane Irish whiskey almost four years ago this month, actually. Oh, this month. Uh, yeah, yeah, May, May uh, 2017. So, welcome, Alex. Um, guest number two, uh, Graham Cole, is a master distiller at Jingle Distillery. He began his career as a brewer. Um, Grain joined William Grant then in 1994 as a bottling manager before becoming distillation manager for a lot of smallish distilleries, Glenfiddich, Alveni, uh, <laughs> uh, Kilvinny, um, and then followed a 14-year career with the uh, Glenmore. 
during his tenure in Glenmorrie, this really saw the expansion of the distillery itself, as well as the development of their range, multi-award winning range of single malt whiskies. Um, Graham joined Dingle in October 2019 and today oversees the production of um, all of their small batch whiskies, as well as manages the uh, gin and the, the vodka as well. Um, Fond of a Twitter poll, I've noticed, and uh, and the odd bad pun or two. Graeme, I'm sure it will distill some knowledge uh, to all of us tonight. Um, um, well, our third our third guest is, um, as I said, former far, fine art uh, student, a sound engineer, and also a DJ. As a mature student, Laura Hemi returned to college to study distillation. Um, with the famous Harriet Watt. Um, at that stage, she was working with Delmore and uh, after Halewood. Um, Laura was involved with the Liverpool Gin and Liverpool Vodka um, and then was involved with Adam Brands and the Boutique uh, Whiskey Company before becoming part of the team in Diageo um, that was looking to set up a new distillery under the George Rowe & Co. or the Rowe & Co. name. Based out of this new distillery um, in the old power plants there um, in uh, in the Diageo campus, I suppose, or the Guinness campus, Laura is instrumental in the um, experimental nature of some of the releases coming from that distillery. Welcome, Laura. And finally, we have Connor Ryan, the Global Spirits Ambassador for Pierce Lines Distillery. With a well-documented 30 years experience in the hospitality industry. Um, Connor is also the uh, proprietor of the multi-award winning bar in Kinsale, the Folk House. Um, I've yet to get down there. Hopefully I will now when things open up again. Connor has also um, represented Ireland in cocktail competition and was one of the founder members of the Cork Whiskey Society, a society um, in the past I've, I've, I've done events for. Um, great, great group of people. Connor started with Pierce Lines in 2016, working with some of their white spirit brands. Um, and then following the, uh, I suppose, the, the building of the distillery in Dublin, um, he came on full time. Um, responsible for all spirits within the Pierce Lines portfolio. So all four of you, you are very, very welcome this evening. I suppose I want to start off, and one of the questions that uh, people often ask me is, um, you know, when it comes to new distilleries, why why do you get involved? And maybe if I can start with Alex, if, if, if things are set up. Um, obviously, I know, because I, I was involved at the time when you had the, uh, the first whiskey, back uh, back uh, in 2009 um, but was building your own distillery always part of the plan or was it something that that came came about out of necessity uh, it was a bit of both to be honest um, so we originally we were sourcing liquid as you know um, <coughs> from Cooley and uh, that was a great start and then we could get the brand up and running and um, ultimately that uh, business was purchased by another entity and, and we kind of lost our supply at that point. And I remember we launched Slane Castle Whiskey at the Oasis gig. Now, if you're going to launch a whiskey brand, Oasis is, is, is a fun one to launch it at. And it built, it built up a bit of traction until 2012. At that point, I had already started looking at building our own because it's the only way really to have control over your quality and and I think arguably credibility in terms of, of being a long-term player in the business. 
But in 2012, when, uh, when we lost our supply, we were left with no choice. And then actually the stakes were raised so much higher because at that point we had nothing to sell, but we still had to fund all of the research, the design, the planning. So it was a massive undertaking, but it was a, a risk worth taking or proved to be in the end, but it was a few sleepless nights along the way. Oh, I could, I could imagine. And uh, Graham, if I can, uh, with you and Dingle, and obviously you weren't there at the, at the very start. And um, I mean, no, 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 no time talking about Dingle. Um, you can, can anyone leave out the great Oliver Hughes, who, who, who I knew very well. Um, but have, I'm sure you've heard some of the stories and uh, all of that about the establishment of the distillery. Can you fill us in on, on, on some of the, maybe some of the trains of thought at that stage of building, building a distillery in Dingle? Yeah, I think I think everybody knows that Dingle was was the first of the newbies. So to to put put your your money on the line and invest in the distillery back then was was a leap of faith more than any other great business plan. And you know Oliver Hughes had that vision, and without it, Dingle would not be there. It's not it's not the place you would particularly choose to build a distillery. Uh, you know, there's lots of easier places to build and probably most more cost-effective places. But, but I think, you know, distilleries, looking at distilleries in general, you need to have a... It takes a certain mindset to start off a distillery and, and, and you get different types. You know, you get the Oliver Hughes who, who had the vision and loved whiskey and loved the drinks industry and could see a route to market pretty much. And then you get the others that are more the, the sort of the mad engineers that, that love to put things together and press buttons and make pumps run and things burst and leak and overflow and you know they, they love to start that way. And then you you've you've got the more measured approach where there's you know there's investment behind it and a bit of a business plan to start off with, which I think we're we're in that phase or most of the new ones are in that phase now. Yeah. Um and and Laura, the uh, I suppose Back when Diageo um, offloaded Bushmills, people thought they that was it for as far as Diageo were concerned. That you know they were completely exiting the Irish whiskey industry and maybe had, as Diageo do sometimes, had seen the writing on the wall and weren't prepared to get back involved. And then almost out of nowhere, uh, you you appear and Rowan Co appears. So again, is there, can you can you fill us in on some of that? Yeah, so I think. Bushmills was a strategic decision at the time, for sure. Um, you know, the the Ronco brand came, well, it, it arrived before I did. Um, I joined the business when we were first striking ground on the distillery, but the brand had been a while in the offing and had been a, a project and a collaboration um, between Caroline Martin and, and uh, the rest of our team. Um, so I don't think there was any plan to replace anything or to uh, or to do anything like that but it was a, a new project we had this amazing building at St James's Gate we wanted to bring new life to it I guess and um, and that's how the distillery ended up um, but enormously challenging of course I mean a, a distillery in a building like that is is always going to be a challenge and the building dictates so much more of it than you're ever going to imagine so um, a huge undertaking but one that's been immensely fun 
Yeah, and and you 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 brought up something there that really has to go to Connor. You know, building a distillery inside a building that maybe wasn't built for a distillery, um, and also I suppose with Pierce Lines, you know, was it really an element of um, Doctor Lines and being so successful in uh, with his distilleries in Kentucky? I mean, bringing those learnings and bringing it back to where it all began for him, and 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 looking to to start a distillery in Ireland was that? Do you think his train of thought? Oh, without a doubt so if you were to think of the worst possible place to put a distillery it's probably where we are we're just neighbours with Laura above um, Pierce Lyons wanted to put a distillery into the Liberties in Dublin because where we are in St. James's Church used to be the Lyons family church the first funeral he was ever at was his granddad's funeral in that church also from the area the Dunn side of the family his mother's side of the family um, were all Coopers they had their own Cooperage five generations down in Smithfield so when he saw the church falling down dilapidated grown over he said this is where I'm going to put my distillery in Ireland now I suppose what everybody might know is this was Pierce Lyons coming back to distilling in Ireland. His last foray in distilling in Ireland was one of the engineers commissioning, designing what we call New Middleton Distillery that was built in 1975 before he went off to America and did what he did with Alltech and set up the Town Branch Distillery. But I suppose the extra kick in the tail was two weeks after he bought the church that was just falling down that nobody cared about. Someone in Dublin County Council decided to turn it into a national monument and an 18-month project became a four-year project and uh, X budget became X by five. So it was mad enough to put it into a church in the first place, but then to work within a national monument status was a whole different ballgame. And as Laura was saying, you have to work with your building. It all looks so pretty on the inside, the logistics that goes behind that and the plant room, your treatment, your water treatment and all that stuff is all behind it. And even... We're taking out grist in bins. You know, there's, it's it's just mad how to set up. It's, it's set up as a beautiful, it's a fully functioning distillery, but the logistics that go behind it, I'm kind of going at the moment, oh, look, there's kind of no customers. Can we not put in some IBCs and maybe like ha- half the journeys that we have to take out product out of the, the site? But look, it is what it is. And we have a fantastic um, brand home for Pierce Whiskey. And it's been a fantastic journey to have uh, joined them from, I suppose, day one before the whiskey came out. I I can't help but thinking, actually, uh, quite poignant and and, and really quite sad, I suppose, on on the one side that, you know, two of the distilleries, uh, the founders, late Oliver Hughes and late Dr. Paris Lyons didn't get to see the benefits of their hard labor. And, you know, it's tragic in a way, but, uh, you know, they are there as testament to you know what they started and uh, we we do think of them often and we're grateful for what they have done definitely definitely yeah i i think i think both i think both of them have have a little stroke of madness as well if you don't mind me saying so and i think that's what you need in this game to to have the vision to make it happen i actually remember uh having a, a comical conversation with oliver uh hughes when we were comparing notes about our very, our two distillery projects in the early days and um both of us were trying to work out who was crazier because I was trying to put one in an architectural conservation area, draw water supply from a special area of conservation, and we're protected up the hill here in Slane. And you look at what, uh, you know, the Pierce Lions is the same thing. Like, if you want character, you know, I suppose, from your distillery, you you have to respond to the building in which it's in. And, and you know, to give these great... Um, production facilities are a really meaningful home. It'd be much easier to go and build it in a green field and put it in a nice tin box 
but it just wouldn't be the same. And I think that's the wonderful thing about what's going on in Ireland is a lot of these distilleries are bringing defunct buildings back to life. And that's part of the restoration and the renaissance of, of the category, which I think is wonderful. And I, I just see, I just see yeah, I there. Interesting, uh, interesting point, sorry, interesting point there on the building a distillery on a greenfield site, because I think sometimes it helps actually when you, you, you have a building because the decisions are made easy for you. The constraints are there. You, 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 the pipe runs are decided. Uh, it, it's actually quite... I think it'd be almost impossible to build the perfect distillery uh, when you have a blank canvas. It's actually easier to uh, have a, a, an existing building. At least you can blame that for any mistakes you make when you put the equipment in and uh, cover up some of your, your own mistakes, probably. I mean, one of the things that you, I suppose you do have an advantage of when you are starting from scratch is whiskey tourism, of course, is playing a, a large role in the development and, and to some extent the funding of new distilleries. So you can build the tourism experience from the ground up to kind of build the distillery almost around it or certainly accommodate tourism. And of course, now we're seeing that, you know, for the last year, we haven't been able to take advantage of that. I suppose on the on the bigger side, how big a hit has it been to maybe your economic models and your branding models as well, not to be, have been able to have visitors for the last while? <laughs> I think visitors are good for they're good for for cash flow and keeping things ticking over. But you know, are they, uh, when you invest in visitor side of things, you, there are months you make money and months you don't. So. Uh, it's very much there to reach out to, to as big an audience as you can possibly get. And so I think for us, yeah, yeah, it's a bit of a hit not having the tourists and the visitors in, but, but it, it, it wouldn't be the be-all and end-all of the, the business as itself. Well, I mean, what, what, what have you all learned from, from this uh, lockdown period in terms of, I don't know, and how have you had to change your business models and how have you cha- had to change how you operate? As a result, yeah, I think we've had to do a lot more online. I certainly have. So uh, I guess I, I have a double role, kind of being involved in the founding, but being a global ambassador as well. Normally, I'd be, you know, moving around the world trying to tell the stories about the brand and educate and everything else. And and now, just like we're doing this evening, it's it's moved online. And I think that's probably good for Irish whiskey in some ways, in that we're many of us are getting to a wider audience. But it is yeah. a very different environment. Um, but in terms of impact on the business, obviously, you know, uh, from a visitor center point of view, it's, it's, it's been a disaster, although some people are, are looking at the virtual tour. Uh, and I think that's a, that's emerging as a new way to, to see distilleries. Uh, and some many of the players are, are getting on that bandwagon, I guess. And then the impact on, on sales, if you're a smaller brand or a younger brand early in its, in its life cycle, you know, you're, uh, the on-trade is shut down and you're then faced with the off-premise where you're competing against very big brands with bigger budgets. And it, 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 it's tougher as a smaller brand to, 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 get, to get cut through. And I think that's probably been harder for some of the emerging brands uh, coming out. But, um, but Irish whiskey's growth, you know, is coming, is coming back now from our own perspective. We're definitely back into growth now. And I think the interest in Irish whiskey is growing all the time. And the fact that we've all had to move online will hopefully prove to be a worthwhile investment for us collectively. Yeah. 
and, and, and like, that, like that with Alex, I used to have to travel a, a lot. You go out, you'd have you'd have shows set up in different countries. You do demonstrations and talks, and you miss that reach. But I think we really miss the reach of people coming into our visitor centres, um, creating micro ambassadors for yourself as they go back out the door. You know, once people get to come in and it, to any of the distilleries, because I've been to all of them, once you go in and you, you get to smell, hear, taste and, and get imparted by the passion of the tour guides and, and see your surroundings, I think then people are kind of sold and then they go off and tell hopefully that positive experience to other people. So you're missing out on that multiplier effect where people can go out onto the market and help to spread the word of not just your own story, but just of the story of Irish whiskey. Because most people don't come to Ireland to visit one distillery. If they're an external um, tourist, tourist they'll, they'll, they'll try and travel from north to south, east to west as much as possible, get from Dingle all the way up to um, Bushmills if they can, and everywhere in between. So I think Irish whiskey is missing that as a whole. And obviously each individual site that would have relied on tourism and the extra bottle sales that comes along with it, it is a big part that's missed, but it has pushed us online, um, online shops, online talks. And it, and it is mad, I suppose. Um, I suppose everybody here would end up having to. I mean, it's mad. Some days you could be talking to someone in Argentina in the morning and China in the evening. And that would have been two weeks planning before. And you managed to knock it on the head in one day. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think um, from an operational perspective, certainly like my, my role the last few years has been very much based in the distillery. So lockdown, I guess, and, and the um, and, and all of the online events have allowed me to, to meet a lot more people than I ordinarily would, actually, which would be a, a slightly different perspective. But look, we built the distillery to be able to welcome guests and, and nothing replaces being able to meet people and share a dram with them and to be able to show them what we do um, face-to-face. I think what all yeah, think four of you do and your, dist- and your distilleries do, is there, uh, is there a sort of pressure to be different because you're new entrants um, into the thing? Do you, do you feel as if you have to do something different or is the, are you, you know, is the heritage of Irish whiskey what's, what's keeping it all together? You know, is it, uh, yeah, if you can, yeah, the, the really, really, do you feel pressure to do something differently than the established brands, I suppose? I, I would say that there is a certain, from our own perspective, I'd say that the, the key is not to be different for different sake, not just doing it to be different. You have to do it because you believe in being different for, for that reason. <clears throat> I think all of the distilleries are carving out their own identity, which is great news for the category because it means we're going to get more diversity. But as you said, the thing that holds us together is the respect for the Irish whiskey making traditions. That's what binds us together. But we're lucky because there's still plenty of scope for innovation and difference. Uh, whilst, as it were, kind of sticking to sticking to the rules as well, and, and holding up quality above all else. I mean, at Slane, like one of one of the one of the reasons I got into the game with Dad is because I grow barley. Like we're lucky enough to to be on fifteen hundred acres here, and we've been price takers sell, selling into the animal feed market for years, and we had an opportunity. And a lot more fun by turning that barley into whiskey, adding the value, keeping it in the local economy and turning it into something that we that we love and enjoy. But because of that connection to the barley, that determined the design of our distillery. So we um, uh, we invested in pot stills and columns. So we're making grain whiskey, but we're only using 
barley, a barley-based mash bill in, in the columns. And that is what makes Slane different. Like our, our single-grain whiskey is going to be a really interesting liquid because we're using uh, a high percentage of straight barley and running it through columns, uh, which is very different to what everyone else is doing. But the reason, again, we did that is because we had the raw materials. So our purpose has driven our process. And I think that's what distilleries are increasingly finding. What is their purpose? What do they stand for? And how does that influence how they want to make uh, the whiskies that they that they lay down and, and release? And I think there's brilliant innovation coming on. I mean, if you look at Exxon Vale, they're also doing stuff in Bali. There's lots of innovation. And everyone on this call has their own purpose and is trying to make whiskies with their own identity. And that's great for the category. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, we one of the core tenets of our brand is reinvention of uh, tradition. Um, and that comes from a, a place of absolute respect. But we also have this really glorious history of, of innovation in Irish whiskey. I mean, the fact that you know, all of our traditions essentially stem from um, stem from these innovations that go back hundreds of years. They're not new and disruptive. And I think that's how, that's part of something that is totally unique to Irish whiskey and something that I think all the distilleries uh, that are new in the market are, they're really working towards and working with. How much of an influence, uh, and I suppose this goes to Graham and Laura in, in the sense that obviously you, you've uh, the background of having worked uh, in Scotland and, and Graham, you work with, in Speyside with Glen Murray and I suppose the, the Speysides aren't typically as peated as perhaps some of the other, you know, they're more on the fruity, nutty flavour. You know, you've got Balbenny, Glen Fiddick, Don McCallan, Glen Liver. Uh, what have you brought from that region, I suppose, and similarly, Laura, what have you brought from that region here, and what fits in nicely with what you're doing? I think. think for I'm me, actually not sure I brought anything from um, in terms of from Scotch whiskey because I'd see my influences as being much more from, um, uh, I guess, globally uh, in terms of, of my whiskey influences. And actually, in my last my two roles I worked a lot with gin so other other spirits too I think as distillers we 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 learn from each other no matter what we make so I I take a more global view than um than taking uh, taking anything from particular markets but that's what's so exciting about whiskey now I think um no there's tons of exciting things happening all over the world and and not just in Europe not just you know in in Ireland or Scotland you know whiskey truly is global and that's really important for me (laughs) Yeah. What about you, Graham? I think for me, the experience I would bring to, to Dingle is having worked at Glen Murray, which is a mature distillery, and, and managed the you know the stock profiles of of not only the single malt there, but also the other malts that we were were taking in within the company and the grain as well. So, so I kind of uh, have a good idea of where where we need to get to in terms of managing all that and and. and to be honest, that, that's that's probably the most important thing is having the the stock profile that can deliver and and to to, to what you want to do in the future. Um, you mentioned peated as well, you know, produced peated spirit at Glenfiddich, Balvenie, and Glen Murray, and you know, brought that to, to Dingle as well. I think the boundaries are have gone on all that to the side of things. I think yeah. uh, you know there there are lots of different reasons to make peated. Spirit, uh, Connor, what about yourself in terms of, you know, where did you want to fit your product range in? 
the whiskey business is a long business. Um, the, you know, we're talking, we're new, new entrants here. But I mean, we're, we're a new entrant, but we started distilling on a different site before we moved into the church in Dublin back in 2012. We've got nine-year-old spirit now, which we haven't released in its own format yet. I mean, people's whiskey will need time to evolve from what distills are using to the barrels that you're using. And then there'll be there'll be more diversity in flavor, in styles. I mean, I suppose an interesting thing about when we started off back in 2012, the spirit still that we use, um, they're Kentucky Vendome stills. Jack O'Shea and Pierce Lines had to battle with the Irish Revenue to get these stills, that particular still, written into the whiskey technical file because it wasn't your traditional pot still. And I suppose what that did as a new entrant, and we're saying, no, how do new entrants change things? Well, you're changing slowly. Um, in the whiskey industry, but that set a precedent for other unusual still configurations to come behind it because the hard battle was done there. Obviously, our, our own spirit is taking its own shape. Uh, we've a lot of. Um, I actually did a single cask offering with um, the Irish Whiskey Society tasting there during the week, and it, it w- received great attention. And that was only a six-year-old that we'd age in expeded barrels and expanuls casks, and people absolutely loved it. So it takes time to put your own stamp on things. Where do we position ourselves? I suppose the same place everybody wants to position themselves as just providing a transparent quality offering of Irish whiskey. You don't want to... So I, I actually personally don't like using the word premium because I don't even know what that means anymore because everything is premium these days. You know, so it's, um, just delivering a good quality offering with a good transparent background, like what Alex was saying there about, I mean, their 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 access to grain is unprecedented and, and land but we only just started venturing into that ourselves of using our own grown grain um out in 120 acres out in Dunboyne where we're growing barley and oats now and I mean that's not about creating a signature flavor profile it's just about knowing where your products come from transparency for your customer and just um trying to create the best product you can with it and then obviously when we get to the distillery, I suppose since day one, we've been using different strains of yeast because Pierce Line set up uh, Alltech as a yeast speciality company. So we are constantly using different strains of yeast, more so in the Pierce Lines distillery in Dublin than when we were in Carlo, using different strains of yeast, see how they take effect. And yes, you can taste differences in spirit, but how does that equate into five, 10 years down the line in the barrel? How much difference is that making? And as you know, Again, it's just about playing around with your grain mash bills. I mean, I actually didn't even know till tonight that Alex was producing um, malt column grain. I love it. I love the sound of it. I've tasted examples of it from Japan, and I, I didn't even realize that. So, I mean, having these chats is great to find out what other people are doing and it creates anticipation for what's coming down the line. Because I suppose these days with the internet and with um you know, instant access to information. People want sometimes an instant um, new whiskey or an instant new flavor where, you know, if people get involved in the journey, it's fantastic. And when we get there and when we all have our own individual flavors at the end, it'll be fantastic. Brings me on to a point, actually. You talked about getting together and, and having a chat. How much collaboration, chat, sharing of information is between all of you? I know the IWA have the kind of uh, education program in which maybe more established distilleries are offering assistance. Uh, and we talked, we talked to Billy Layton and uh, Noel Sweeney last week, and they talked about, you know, offering their hand out if anybody ever had any issues. I mean, is that something that is uh, strong within the Irish whiskey industry? I, I can certainly say on, on my part, when I, you know, I started out, as John said at the beginning, I was a brand ambassador initially, and I knew a bit about 
I guess, selling whiskey and, and certainly a bit about consuming it as well. But in terms of learning how to make it and design, a, help design it, I'm not a qualified distiller, but I certainly had to learn if we were going to invest in a distillery. And I, I got a lot of people, help from people uh, in the Irish whiskey industry, including people at Irish distillers uh, and, and other, you know, the big distillers and other smaller ones. So I think there is a very strong sense of collaboration and support out there because it's in everybody's interest to maintain quality and nurture innovation, because that means more variety for consumers who are interested in the category. And I think that's ultimately a, a good thing for everyone. So I, from my own perspective, and, and I in turn, you know, I actually had a call with someone uh, only an hour ago who, who's looking at another project. I'm always happy to try and help others um, because I know it was a rough road. You know, it's not easy to try and get a distillery off the ground, let alone launch a brand. Uh, and so we do need to help each other. And I think it's in everyone's interest to see the category become more diverse and bigger over time. I mean, the, uh, the Irish Whiskey Association offers a great platform for people to meet up and strike That's, up relationships. Yeah. But do you know what I miss probably most? And it's, I mean, as distillers and as ambassadors, you miss the trade shows. That's where you yes. find out. Um, or that, that's where all the crack happens. That's where your people are pulling samples from under the table and going, try this. And then you put you into a different kind of um, thinking about what you're doing yourself. You really do miss the more informal surroundings where you can meet people in the trade. I mean, I think the last time I might have met Alex in person was New York. You know, so it's <laughs> it's mad how these things kind of and, and that's where you chat about what you're doing and have a bit of crack. But what was great is how close knit the, um, the, the network is. I mean, I end up talking to people a lot, either they ring me or I ring them about export markets. And we can help each other a lot on export markets. You know, how do you how do you find this market? Did you need to do that chip on the back or did you need to do this kind of paperwork and help yeah. each other along? So, I, I mean, Irish whiskey needs to grow together, obviously, you know, and the category needs to grow as, as a united front. Um, we've all got our own boats to row in the middle of that, of course. But um, I, I think Irish whiskey is fantastic. Um, at, uh, at at working together, sharing information, um, sharing resources. I've never had any anything but positive interactions with anyone I've ever spoken to, either looking or giving advice to. Graeme, is that something that you think is unique to Ireland or is that something you experience as well at your time in, in Scotland? I think in Scotland, definitely there's a lot of help on the production side and you know lots of trade bodies and, and informal sharing of information to help each other and share best practice. So I think that, that that's similar to Ireland, where Ireland, there's more people learning the ropes. So you know, there's there's more to learn. I think there's obviously a lot more established distilleries in, in Scotland. Probably where you wouldn't see it in Scotland is the help on the sales side of things, because that, that tends to still to be pretty competitive. So I think that's maybe unique to Ireland that there's there's help on on the you know just sharing how to get things to market. I suppose if we were to look at the differences between you know the distilleries that you you all have, obviously you all have distilleries. You all started from scratch, uh, and, and you started with a slightly different approach in each case. So if if you take the Paris Lions and, and the Dingle Distillery, they made a conscious decision to begin with gin and vodka and other spirits. Whereas uh, Alex and uh, Laura, you, you're straight into the whiskey. I just want to try and work out, you know, wh what would assuage you one way or another to go one way or the other? 
I'll let you go first, Laura. <laughs> I, I'm happy to talk, but uh, you, you, you kick off. I, I've definitely got a good answer to that one anyway, um, but you go. Yeah, I think the, for us, the focus was always going to be whiskey. So there was never any question whether we would or wouldn't make gin. It was that whiskey was the focus. We knew we wanted to build a plant where we could play and, uh, and make a lot of different styles of spirit. So that really, again, going back to the building and the design and the complexities of working in the space, um, was very much focused on delivering what we wanted out of a whiskey distillery. Having said that, you know, <laughs> could I make gin tomorrow? Yeah, I mean, we could if we wanted to, but you know, that's not cards at the moment. Um, yeah. uh, we're, we're very much a whiskey distillery. But what, one of your stills does take uh, some elements from gin distillation. Is that right, as far as I remember? Yeah, you're absolutely right, yeah. yeah. Um, it does have a, a, a history in gin, a bit like me. Um, that would be our, our intermediate still, which is actually featured the old still head that's basically been restored for us that used to be a, a Tanqueray still. So that dates back to the 1860s. And it's had some fair career um, in three different countries and we think about five different distilleries and yeah it had a long career in gin before we rescued it from um its uh, sort of retirement career as a flower pot and it's now um, doing a lot of hard work for us yeah you saved it from the dark side brilliant (laughs) brought it over to whiskey which is great but i mean i mean this alex you're going to explain there why what your decision was behind uh, going yeah well i think uh, we were lucky, you know, to be honest. I think uh, the the supply line has opened up more now. But back in 2015, when we kind of partnered with Brian Foreman, I mean, the reason I actually looked very heavily at gin and we even had a whole plant designed and gone a bit of the way down uh, the branding route and everything as well. But we stuck with whiskey mainly because in order to get us started, we were able to procure liquid from other distilleries and, and in much the same way that I did when I started Slane Castle Whiskey for Dad. And, and that, you know, not everyone was able to get hold of liquid in order to get themselves started. And, you know, we, we were able to get hold of liquid in 2015, but we then spent a further two years putting it into wood of our own choosing to try and put our own stamp on it. And then over time, of course, we'll be able to phase in our own distillate made at Slane. And we've always been very honest that, that we source liquid elsewhere to get us started. And so that was that was the main reason why we stuck to whiskey, because if you start a brand, whether it's a gin brand or a whiskey brand or a rum brand, it takes a huge amount of investment to get a brand up and running. And so uh, I remember someone in the industry describing when you're starting a brand, you're filling two sinks full of water and then you take the plugs out. And, and that's what happens for the first while because you're just pouring resources down to build the brand. Whereas if you just focus on whiskey, you've only got one sink to fill. But the only way you could do that is if you had the liquid to get you started. And we were lucky enough to be able to procure some really good whiskey from other distilleries, spend two years putting our own stamp on it with maturation and barrels of our choosing and then launch. And, and that's why we didn't do gin in the end. Yeah. I suppose you might have had the, you and Laura might have had the advantage of obviously having very large companies behind you as well supporting you and maybe for a smaller uh, like new starts distillery it might be might be almost a necessity to get into gin and vodka and i know gin and vodka have been hugely successful for both pierce lions and for dingle and how much did it help financially and how much did it help the brand having those behind you 
Graham or Connor? I think for, for Dingle, it, yeah, for Dingle, it definitely, it definitely helped. You know, and uh, Dingle started with gin and vodka, well, certainly with the gin before, before the gin boom. But the gin was chosen really because it, the, uh, we, with our uh, connection with Porterhouse and the, and the bars and restaurants that we had, we could at least see a route to sale. So if nothing else, we could sell within our own, you know, our own properties and our own outlets. So that that was the the logic. Uh, there was the you know, the actual fact that, that it's taken off internationally has been a, a, a huge boost. And yeah, it, you know, it brings cash in almost immediately with not too much of an outlay. So it, it, yeah. it, to be fair, it, it kept it, it. It made the whiskey probably for the first five years at the distillery. Okay. But would would having a, such a successful brand as Dingle Gin almost take, you know, your eye off something? You can't give whiskey 100% because the gin is so successful. You need to ensure the consistency. You need to ensure the quality and you need to ensure the supply. Yeah, I think... <laughs> I think making whiskies relatively straightforward, as long as you've got the money to finance it and the money to to to, to keep the quality up. So, so it is easy to 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 run the two streams together, and it, it, you know it, it definitely got Dingle a foothold in the spirits market and you know, got a name for distillation. So, so yeah, I think you know the two run hand in hand. You learn you can learn an awful lot about your marketing and your sales from the gin side. So. You can almost make your mistakes on the gin before you launch the whiskey. What about you, Connor? Who's um, you've got your I, successful I, I range mean, there? I mean, it's it's like having, I suppose, it's going out into the forest with a Swiss Army knife rather than just a hunting knife. You know, have, having having multiple um, items in your arsenal to get listed with. I mean, we found um, talking to exporters, they might ring us about our halfpenny rhubarb gin, and then they go, and then you end up telling them about your whiskey story, and all of a sudden whiskey becomes their focus or people that are only interested in our whiskey and then all of a sudden that they, they love the story of the gins so i suppose um as john was saying does it distract uh, one from the other i suppose that that's an ideal first world problem if you're worrying about dividing your attention between two successful brands you know you can you can you can build that up i mean you know you can you can put more attention on each and divide and segment people um to work on those specifically but we find having I mean, we had our halfpenny gin, and it was actually from the on-trade kind of requesting um, a sibling to the gin. Is that's how we came up with our halfpenny whiskey as our kind of blended no-age statement version of whiskeys from Pierce Lines. So the gin is brilliant, and the the, the, the gin has been brilliant for us. Our halfpenny or meal gins, and I, I don't think it actually detracts from the whiskey when we're actually selling to um, retailers. Because people, I suppose, when you're talking to people from a sales point of view, be it retail, be it export, they love grouping together products. If you've, um, the fact that, you know, we might have two different gins, two different whiskeys, and they can put them on mixed loads, it actually is a benefit to us rather than a, than a hindrance. Because they love, and I, I see Graham nodding because he actually knows, he can, he, 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 he probably sees it every day where people love mixing loads. And it actually makes um, sense when, when you are dealing with, um, large retailers. If when you are dealing with export markets, they love groupage. They love to be able to put the products together. Thank, thank the Lord for lazy buyers. <laughs> yep. Um, on on the uh, on the idea of lazy buyers, 
I mean, all four of you at one stage were in a situation whereby you had a brand, nobody knew anything about it, and you're trying to get it into market. What were the major challenges that you encountered and maybe how, how were they overcome? Small bites, you know, um, it, it's just getting in there and just try and build it organically. I mean, unless you're going to ha- put humongous money behind something, you can only do it organically by by just delivering good products, good um, getting good people on board with you, getting good distributors. Um just little bits. And I suppose, I mean, we're on about ourselves here as, as smaller distilleries. Irish whiskey as a whole, when you, when you go traveling and when you go to international markets, Irish whiskey is the little player. Um, there's so many people that don't even understand the category yet. And and what we have to do as an industry and uh, small, small distilleries, big distilleries, is educate people around the world about why Irish whiskey um, is unique, why it's different, why it has different offerings. Um, why it's got different usabilities, be it mixed drinks, be it, um, you, you know, food pairings, whatever we need to do. But I suppose it's about raising the awareness of Irish whiskey first and then our own brands within that. And all of us together are making that happen, I think. Yeah, I think uh, liquid to lips is so important. And uh, Connor, you were talking about the importance of trade shows, like to have that interface with consumers where you can not only educate them, <laughs> but, you, you know, on, on the story of Irish whiskey and our different identities, but getting the chance for people to taste it um, is so important, certainly for us as a brand. So committing resources to getting... Uh, people giving people the opportunity to to sample liquid is really important, and, and the trade shows, you know, the whiskey lives of the world, and all of those are, are a great way as as a smaller brand to, to get into face with people, uh, and, and they're fun because and and that's when people can hop between different brands and broaden their understanding and have fun at the same time. So, you know, I think that's the fact that we haven't been able to do those shows, you know, for the last um, for the last period due due to the pandemic has has definitely been um, a shortfall. And obviously you can't do tasting safely either, uh, or that's been very difficult. So that that has been a challenge. Uh, so I would say liquid to lips for me is probably one of the most important ways to, to grow a brand. Yeah, I'd, I definitely agree with all of that. And I think I, and we do have the support of a big business behind us, but actually all of those challenges are, are all the same for us getting people to to try the brand to uh, to experiment with it all of those things require like face-to-face contact and building relationships with integrity and maintaining quality those are the most important things you you need a few good stories as well (laughs) and we all have those all of us today have have good stories and i think there's such a rich tapestry of stories threaded right through the to the well-established players but all of the newcomers have great stories and you know, whiskey is about good conversation and good liquid coming together. And I think that's where Irish whiskey is uh, is in a really strong position. Yeah, we have an interesting question in here from James uh, from Sleep League. If you don't have 100 years of distilling history, how do you build the credentials for gin, finishing, blending? Any thoughts on, on those? I mean, you're all starting, maybe perhaps with the exception of uh, Roan Co. You know, there is no historical precedent for you guys. Uh, how do you build up your credibility? How do you build a brand when you're new? It's it's a difficult one because what you see you see in Ireland at the moment is you, uh, as, a, as a, a very new distillery, you, you get, uh, you're welcomed with open arms and in the first few years. And then you, you put out your first release, which will be pretty pricey probably. 
and you're allowed one pricey release and then then you go into your second release and if that's uh, equally pricey then you start to get a bit of bad press so it's how you ride that storm there's always going to be peaks and troughs in, in, in your popularity in the first few years you cannot please everybody um, you've got the cask strength crusade uh, who want you know as strong as possible. You've got others that want value for money. You've got others that want uh, a release every month. Um, you just cannot keep up with with that demand. But as a group, we can because we can all fill the void and we can all put our releases out uh, at different times and and hopefully keep keep the the interest out there. But it, it is it's a bit of a rocky ride. And Dingle's been there. Dingle's been. You know, it was the darling at the beginning, and then uh, it became probably too collectible, and you know, people people turn against you then, and, and now we're probably, hopefully, back in favour again. But uh, you know, every distillery will, will go through that until you're established. To along the way, you've just got to try and keep the consumer with you and, and keep 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 a base of, of you know, a fan base. It's not the best words to use, but you need you need to keep followers genuine followers with you along the journey i mean you all started off with a different number of skews so i mean alex in slain you started off with your slain with your single product uh, and also laura you started off with the the single release and connor i think you started off with four graham i've lost count again i mean is there is there forgiveness amongst the consumer for getting it wrong I mean, is there only one chance to make a good impression? And do you feel that pressure? There is a small bit of that. But I think um, I think the industry, um, not well, the industry is ourselves. I think our, the customers, because obviously the customers dictate demand at the end of the day. If, if, if you can bring the customers along in your story, if they know that you're striving towards being um, uh, as good as you can be by producing stuff as transparently as you can be, I think there's definitely room for forgiveness. I mean, presumably, Alex, you started off with the one product. What was the thinking behind that? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was. Uh, I guess it's, if you have one arrow and shoot it well, that can be a good strategy. And it means that you can get a lot of focus internally and with your distributors on one SKU. Um, obviously, being part of Brand Foreman is helpful in that regard, for sure, because they've got other products in their portfolio that, that we can kind of play against. But for us, we just wanted a single-minded vision in that our ambition is obviously to grow Slane in, in, in our, our core offering, the triple cast blend, into a significant player. And we felt that putting our best foot forward with an affordable but flavorsome blend was, was the right strategic move for us. And that's where we're going to build our core and then we'll ladder up into, uh, and I agree with Connor about mentioning the word premium, but our kind of more intriguing uh, higher higher kind of value products like our pot stills and our single grains, those will come in time. But we want to keep putting our single-minded best foot forward for a while. And, and you know, Irish whiskey, I think, has seen, particularly if you look at the bigger brands, is very accessible, uh, both in terms of its flavor profile and, and, its, and its price point. And we wanted to play in that space, but try and over-deliver on flavor for the price point. That was certainly our ambition. And uh, that will continue to be, the most important focus for our business for, I think, you know, as a brand, you're still introducing yourself for the first 10 years. I mean, you know, it takes a long time to build a brand of scale. 
Uh, and then, so so that was just our our chosen strategy uh, to be single minded. Uh, but if we were going to come out with a first impression to your early question, it had to be a good one. And that's why we stayed out of the market for two years, investing more time and extra maturation to try and improve the quality of the liquid, uh, which was the triple pass. And that's hopefully what we've done. Um, and uh, more whiskies will come from Slane. But uh, as we all know, if there's one thing you need in this game, it's patience. Uh, that's for sure were the brands that you all have were they produced with a particular consumer in mind um or was it more um the 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 strategy and the style of whiskey that you wanted to produce i suppose because we came out with well obviously laura will have a big story on that side of things a big focus on that with ourselves we know that it's not um, one key fits all locks. We came out with um, a multiple of whiskies to try and, you know, cater for mul- multiple palettes, multiple uses um, uh, between our peers five, seven and 12, the kind of core, you know, um, the five and seven are fantastic at both sipping, but mixing and cocktails, um, food pairings, you know, they actually did come out with different usages in mind and different customers in mind. And because may- maybe it was down to just, um, just know, knowing, I suppose, and, and wanting to cast the net wide and, and try and get as, as much people involved in the brand, the brand story, pick the bottle up, taste it, ask the question and find out more about who we are and where we're going. Um, so, yeah, that I suppose coming from the, the wide net approach that we had, um, I, I think Laura was going to jump in just before me there. I think, um, yeah, I mean, that's it. We, we designed our whiskey with bartenders. So uh, when Caroline was like, working to her initial brief, she worked with uh, a group of Irish bartenders and the liquid was developed with them in mind because we deliberately wanted to make something that worked really well in a mixed drink, but was you know, a, a sippable, delicious whiskey, um, neat or on the rocks too. So uh, we did have specific consumers in mind. I guess we didn't have serves in mind and that we wanted people to experiment as much as they could with the whiskey, which is why it's been designed the way it has. But you know, as as we've evolved, we're starting to be able to offer different flavor experiences i guess in some of our, our other releases so the cost strength series which you know we released in 2019 and 2020 it's again it's something different it's uh that's irish whiskey in its purest most unadulterated form that's a completely different flavor experience and again with the with the new releases that uh, we're selling at the distillery now um those are again pushing the boundaries with some of the other collaborations that we've worked on with with the open gate brewery so i guess we're, we're doing something you know, similar to what connor's describing and that we want to be able to offer different experiences to different people but with with the blend being our core what about you graham yeah sorry i've just been trying to fiddle with the mic to see if i can get it any better but i don't know if it's still crackling it's a you, little bit better but it? not much <laughs> yeah 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 don't know apologies the the, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I suppose, Graham, for, for you on that on that topic, I mean, uh, look, for when it comes to Dingle Whiskey, is there a core, you know, or are you constantly um, experimenting, you know, pot stale, single pot stale and some of the stuff that you have coming down the line? No, we're, we're, we're definitely heading towards a core expression. It's, it's, it's much easier to, to reach out to wider markets when you've you've got something that you can offer consistently. 
so so yeah we were we've we've kind of reached that level of maturity where we're about to to, to enter into that but we will always still have our uh, more limited uh, uh, releases as well and especially with the pot still being slightly smaller volume and alex i suppose for you um although you know, you explain the, um, the the flavor profile and the extra maturation to achieve that, but obviously you ha- also had the obvious link twofold. I suppose Brown Foreman, some of their brands are always this kind of rebellious, almost rock and roll style, and you had Rocks campaign. So was it easier for you to have this particular market to go for? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think our association with music, um, like the Slane concerts, would have almost universal recognition in Ireland. But when you're talking to an international audience in uh, in America, it's, it's a different story. Although um, if you go into an Irish bar, there's invariably someone Irish behind the bar and they'll know Slane and that's helpful. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> I think, um, you know... <laughs> trying to get a campaign idea. Like, as I said earlier, good brands are about good stories and all of the people on the call today have a, have a great story uh, and probably a plethora of them as well of, of different stories. And some of them are rooted in place and some of them are rooted in people. Um, so music will continue to be important for us. So as I said, it's the 40th anniversary of Slain, the first gig in 81 this year, and we'll be launching a limited edition to celebrate that occasion later this year, uh, which will be the first kind of, uh, I guess, release coming out of Slain beyond our single triple cast uh, offering. Um, so we're, we're going very slowly in terms of opening up new releases because I guess we're, we're holding back for for the distillate that was made entirely and matured, you know, uh, here in Slane where we've got the single grain, uh, the estate malt, uh, and then obviously the pot still, which, which all of us are playing in. And, you know, pot still is such a wonderfully complex liquid. Uh, and over the next decade, you know, to see the transformation of the Irish whiskey category, which has obviously been led uh, by those who, who are already building the category, but to see the transformation of what um, I guess single malt did for Scotch and watch that happen for, for the Irish whiskey category as pot still unfolds is like we're in for an amazing decade ahead uh, of, of, you know, if you're an Irish whiskey fan now, you've got 10 years of good drinking ahead of you as, as new releases continue to come out from the different players. So I, as, as an Irish whiskey fan myself, I'm, I'm, hugely excited about where where the category is going i suppose that that leads on to where you know uh, laura and graham think of 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 single pot still i mean it's something i grew up with um connor i'm sure grew up with you know it surrounded us um but for you to come over and start working in an irish distillery and this new style of whiskey that let's face facts was alien to you how does that sit and 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 and, uh, how how do you feel working with it so i would say that the first ever whiskey tasting I went to, which is like probably like 16, 18 years ago, um, Redbreast 12 was actually one of, one of the first whiskies I, I ever tried. And it's always been one of my absolute favorites. So Pot Still has always been um, very beloved uh, to me personally. So to be able to be part of it, my, my goodness. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. 
but I totally agree with everything that Alex has said. I mean, the next decade for um, for, for pot still is going to be just immense. We've we've already got so many great whiskies that's done so many great things for us as a as a degree um, in the past and, and the present. A future of, of wild and fantastic and brilliant. I can't wait. And Graham, your thoughts on pot still? For me, pot still was one of the main reasons for for moving to Ireland. You know, it's unique to. Irish whiskey and to be able to to work with you know such a unique spirit was was really interesting and I think uh, hand on heart that's probably where Ireland will become very strong in the future and you you know you maybe see pot still outdo single malt in the future I, I don't know but uh, definitely you know that's that's I think that's where we should put in a, a lot of our effort in and. and raising the profile of it and, and there needs to be a lot of education there because you know even two three years ago I, w- I wouldn't have known what pot still was um, by definition so uh, there is a lot of work to do there to get that message out but uh, I think we should put the effort in there because we'll, we'll reap the, the benefits in the future. Connor, you're also are going to be producing pot still uh, I believe. Yeah I suppose over the last 18 months the majority of the liquid that we've produced has been pot still, but actually half of the pot still we produced would be technically today not regarded as pot still. We've gone very wide with, uh, we'll run a campaign of a GI compliant pot still within your 5% and then we'll run a campaign of it outside the GI. What that will be called in the future, I don't know, but it's going to taste damn good. But, you know, it's uh, I, actually, I was just looking at the new make I had behind me there while I go, and it's probably one of my favorite new makes that we produced. It was up to 30%. It was half and half wheat and rye, and then half and half uh, malted on malted barley. And it does make a difference. And as Alex and Laura were saying, the future is so exciting for Irish whiskey. I mean, we're only starting. We're only in our infancy of, of the comeback, back to hopefully world domination on the whiskey scene. Um, <laughs> but pot still is definitely a big part of it. But as Graham said, education is key. There's a lot of people out there in the whiskey world that are still trying to understand what Irish whiskey is. Pot still whiskey is a complete enigma to them altogether. So it's up to us as individuals, um, the customers, the people that love our whiskey, that that love Irish whiskey, to tell their friends, bring a bottle to the next party when they can meet up again of pot still whiskey and explain to them what it is. But no, the, the excitement is, is coming in the future when we get to bring all of our products together. But yes, we're producing uh, predominantly pot still at the moment. We didn't produce pot still when we were in Carlo, but we've been predominantly producing pot still since um, 2017, since we've been in Dublin. Yeah. I mean, overall, you know, th- we've seen the, the huge rise in the number of distilleries. And in a sense, you might be the older of the newer entries into the market. What's been the biggest thing that you've learned along the way and for these newer distilleries just starting up now, you know, would there be any nuggets of advice uh, of your experience that you picked up that might be useful to some of those or even ones that are starting to think about entering into the market? Thinking about where you're going to sell your whiskey first, almost before you make it. it. I know it sounds like putting the cart before the horse, but if you don't think that, you know, if you don't research what you're doing, if you don't think that you can create um, outlets as in distribution channels for your product, John, <laughs> come on, John. Um, 
But fi- fi- finding a route to market as quick as possible, because that's key. Obviously, you have to lay down spirit or you might have to um, have source spirit for a time and you, you create your flavor profile through, through through that. But I suppose it's thinking ahead of when your whiskey is mature and finding a way for you to sell it. That's that's the key at the end of the day. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you, Connor. I mean, route to market. Um, <clears throat> I remember John Teeling actually saying, uh, who's obviously a complete, you know, he won't like the word veteran, but, <laughs> but um, you know, route to market is ultimately, if you can't sell the stuff, you're, you're going to end up with problems down back the chain. So, so you need to think about what's your proposition, who you're selling to, and how you're going to get it, who's, who's going to be your route to market. That, that's, if you crack that, you know, then, then the rest, to a certain extent, can follow. You can hire a great team to make whiskey. You can find an extraordinary site to build a distillery. You can get great raw materials. But unless you know how to sell the brand uh, and you have a good brand proposition, it's it's hard to make the rest of it work. Yeah, and does the brand come before the whiskey or the whiskey come before the brand in terms of sequence? Uh, well, for us, it was certainly the, the brand. I mean, that's how we were able to... I guess, uh, attract a partnership with someone like Brian Foreman because, you know, we had a good backstory. We'd proved, I guess, with Slane Castle Whiskey that you could transition that brand awareness into whiskey, which doesn't work for everything. Um, but I think, you know, it's brand probably needs to come first because ultimately that's what's going to engage people. That's that's the connection you're going to get with people when they're sitting on a bar stool enjoying your liquid you've got to deliver on the liquid but unless you have a good story and a brand to follow it um to or to take the lead i think it's difficult to make the rest of it work so for me it would definitely be brand first to get you started and follow from there yeah and i'd agree as a a maker as well like the the brand leads and and guides and then um, we make liquid that has to live up to that and and live up to the premise of of the brand but um, the brand has to be there in order for us to do it but i think that's a great way of putting it it comes back to that whole thing of purpose doesn't it it's like you know what do we stand for as as a brand and how do we deliver the liquid to meet to meet that i think that's a really good way to put it Connor, I mean, you didn't really have a brand, I suppose, before. You didn't have a history. Maybe that's not entirely true. You did have the Altec and you did have a Dr. Pierce Lyons of American brands as well. But did you find you had to carve out a niche brand for yourselves and then develop the whiskey? Or did you start with the liquid first? We, we started with the liquid first just because it's just the way Dr. Lyons wanted, wanted to work. He said, I want to start producing Irish whiskey, you know, um, don't get it right, get it going, was kind of a very, was a saying that he used to say an awful lot before. So um, within, within a couple of months of ha- um, of the inception of co- him coming back to Irish whiskey, the stills were uh, placed in Carlo. We were producing whiskey. Even, uh, obviously, didn't, we knew that it was going to be Pierce Lines Distillery in, in Dublin, but, you know, finalising even the brand name. And I suppose the identity of the whiskey is created by, obviously, our founder and, and now Mark Lines, his son. Is created by them, their legacy in in whiskey and in the Dublin in the Dublin industry. But I suppose because of our previous um, life experience in whiskey, that that was huge from um, a, a, a creation of liquid point of view, from a creation of brand point of view, and then ultimately to um, sales and route to market. Because us having the Town Branch Distillery in Lexington Brewing in Kentucky, and then obviously putting in the 
the Pure Science Distillery in Dublin, there's a great synergy between the two distilleries because we we only use our bourbon barrels and our rye barrels from our from our sister distillery in Kentucky. And when we get to go out and tell that story and explain that to people, it starts making more sense on a bigger scale and starts making the story more understandable of how we ended up kind of coming together um, as Pierce Whiskey. It, it's a very it's it's a very fine line you balance between the brand and the whiskey, but ultimately you create a good brand. And as Laura said, you need the whiskey to follow, and hopefully you get both right in tandem. Graham, yeah, I think uh, with again Dingle being leading the way of the new distilleries, with nothing to compare against. So I think you you have to have a vision, but beneath that vision, you still need to have the nuts and bolts to to deliver it. Or uh, but. You also need to be flexible. You need to have the stock profile that 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 can adapt, and you know you can't have all your eggs in one basket or all your eggs in too many baskets. Uh, the whiskey market's evolving. The Irish whiskey market's evolving year on year. So I don't think hand and heart anybody can say what it's going to be like in five years' time. So so you need to keep your options open, and uh, you know just make sure you have that that spirit in the warehouse that that can adapt to market conditions. You know, nobody knew uh, what was going to happen in the last eighteen months. You know, whiskey's pretty resilient; it can it does now have no shelf life. So, so we're lucky that way. But but things have changed. You know, and we've we've seen. Yeah, you know, we would have ideally uh, accessed more international markets last year. That would have been our plan. We had the stock and the profile to do it, but but that obviously didn't happen. But but now, as we see the the COVID curtain is kind of lifting from from east to west. We're seeing lots of markets now opening up uh, further afield, and that's where the growth is at the moment. So, 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 so whiskey's unpredictable. You just have to have the the, the whiskey in the warehouse that that can adapt to to different conditions. I suppose finally, from my side anyway, in terms of. Um I mean, none of you, and I'm not going to call it baggage. You don't have the, you don't have that historic legacy. You don't have that previous series of releases that you need to measure up to, or either be constrained with, or being pushed by. It depends how you look at it. I mean, is that liberating that you're that you're able to start with a clean sheet in some sense, or do you find it? It's actually a hindrance into becoming established. It's fabulous. That, that I mean, that, that's why Irish whiskey is going to be so exciting. I mean, we all know the whiskey takes a long time. This year, I mean, only in, the, in by the latter half of this year. I mean, we've been ourselves quite enough on on. We have our core expressions. We brought out the odd special. We're planning on bringing out three. Now that our whiskey is game fit, so to speak, we're bringing out three different special editions before the end of the year. We're going to see so much more of that from every distillery, and it's so exciting to be a, a customer of Irish whiskey and to be able to pick up all these expressions from different people to to gauge the. Um, the maturation to gauge the experience, the, the whole Irish whiskey experience together. Um, I think it's it's very exciting, um, and I think there's there's going to be so many new offerings coming on the market. It's just going to be fantastic for the category to push its message forward. And I suppose as smaller players, uh, I suppose we're more agile. We we you know we don't ha- always have to listen to market the marketing department in this company or that company. You have an idea, you grab the ball, you run with it, you bring it out. And hopefully it's an exciting expression of your own 
whiskey, an exciting expression of Irish whiskey in general. But is there a fear of oversaturation with that in mind, where you will have all these all these uh, players coming to market with their different styles? And I mean, a few years ago, we were all talking about craft beers, and then all of a sudden, it almost seems like it's oversaturated. You know, is that a worry? I think that goes back to the like having your core purpose as a brand and and being true to it. And if you're true to it and it makes sense, then it will have integrity. Um, so I'm I'm not so worried about that. I think that is that it's just going to be super exciting and it's very liberating as a distiller and, and a maker to be part of it. Yeah, I, I I'd say it is liberating being able to start 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 from scratch. Oh, sorry, Greg. No, I was just saying I think it's very liberating to be able to start from scratch. But if, you know, we've been talking about pot still, and you know, let's remember it was basically down to, to pretty much one one distillery, and thankfully. You know, the benchmark, Laura, you mentioned uh, Red, Red Breast uh, 12 earlier on. Like the benchmark for pot still is high because, you know, it, it, it was main, it was put out at a high bar. And I think it's great now because the drive for everyone, everyone's ambition is to try and put their own stamp and, and meet or exceed those expectations. And I think because the bar is high, in those um, more niche Irish whiskey categories like single grain and pot still, I think everyone is going to stretch themselves to to produce great whiskey. And if you look at the quality of the new make that's coming out uh, out of uh, the people on this call, but but the other Irish distilleries, again, getting back to what's going to happen over the next decade, it, it, it's going to be fantastic. But but having the freedom to be new is definitely liberating. But to Laura's point, you need to have purpose to guide. Otherwise, you end up becoming a scattergun and, and all things to all people, which which I don't think works. Graham? Yeah, I think you know, I think it, there is a concern there. We, you know, we've gone from four distilleries to pretty much almost 40 distilleries in a very short space of time. And you know, my only worry would be that most of the new distilleries are quite small players. And... You know, we need we need a few bigger players in there to to help open up the the Irish whiskey markets across across the world, and then then the smaller distillers can can ride on the on the, on the back of that as well. So, so I think that you know I think there are difficult times ahead uh, as everybody establishes themselves. As I say, as I said earlier, each distillery goes through a bit of pain um, in the early years, or the the kind of not even the teenage years, as the you know the the sort of four to seven year old mark is probably the trickiest trickiest time to get through so so you know, we all need to, to help each other but, but you know if the Irish whiskey market can grow and market share can grow then then we can we can all benefit from that okay I think we're nearly coming to the end of our time here tonight Sergios um, I mean I think oh. uh, my 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 take from this has been you know that certainly new distilleries are doing what we what what we put down in the title you know really shaking things up for the industry and I think everyone is 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 learning from those and for me personally someone who's worked with larger distilleries and smaller distilleries there's learnings both ways happening now I mean and we certainly got that last week when we were talking to to uh, to Billy Layton and uh, he, he said yeah he was certainly looking at a lot of the uh, newer entrants and seeing what they were doing and you know that 
while not majorly influencing what he does, he's keeping an eye on it because there's something there and there's something good to be garnered from it. So personally, I think the future, the future is very bright. Um, um, from the conversation tonight, I'm certainly looking forward to some of the releases that you guys are coming out with. Um, Alex, stick my name down for one of those anniversary bottlings anyway. And, uh, and, uh, Connor, we need to have a chat about some of that new make of what you were talking about, you know? Um, but for me, guys, it's been a great, uh, thank you. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on this call. And, um, I hope, uh, I hope, I hope you've enjoyed it as well. And, uh, I think all this has been, you know, we learned from each other through these calls. Yeah. I mean, thank you all very much for, well, contributing to the, to the marketplace, obviously as well, the landscape and, and giving us your insight into the challenges and the opportunities for entering the market. I certainly think it's going to be a really exciting time. And, and you're right. You, you know, you've mentioned timescales of come back in 10 years almost. And uh, I, I might go into some sort of cryogenic chamber for 10 years and come back and, and, and be pleasantly surprised. It would be fantastic. But uh, thank you all for being our fantastic guests. And look, we look forward to, to seeing what you're going to bring out in the in the near future. And uh, hopefully we'll be meeting in person and being able to come and visit your distillery. So please, people, when things open up, do come and visit these fantastic distilleries. It's really an opportunity to meet the brands and, and you know, some very special locations as well. So thank you for being our guests. And thank you to our audience as well. We'll, we'll sign off with you guys now and we'll uh, stay on with John just to introduce what we're going to talk about next week. So again, thank you very much. Thank you for your time. Launcher. Launcher, all the best. Thanks, million. Thank you so much. Thank you all very much. I think that was a fascinating insight into what it takes to be a new distillery. Although new, but maybe not shiny, shiny new, but I mean, they're, they're starting to, I suppose, get to the stage of reaching maturity. So uh, thank you very much to, to our audience for joining us. So we've got an interesting show lined up next week. Yeah. It's all about casks, I think, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it's something that I think Ireland has become very synonymous with as well. So next week we've got a, a world leader in cask finishing is our topic. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're delighted to be joined by four representatives there of, that really know what different cast finishes are all about. So we're joined by Alex Chasco from Teeling, Paul Corbett from Clonakilty Distillery, Seamus Lowry from Bushmills, and Sabine Sheen from wow. Lambay Irish Whiskey Company. And, you know, that promises to be a really exciting chat as well, John. Is that something oh. Oh, that whets the appetite I mean- there? Yeah, because uh, look, when I when I started off in this industry, when it came to cask finishing, you really just had Bushmill 16. And, you know, to get that story, maybe. And then to someone like uh, Alex, who has, you know, I, I think he's got a warehouse full of experiments going on with different types of casks. And, and Sabine with the Camus Cognac um, coming coming through, you know, and having that that element and then of yeah. course Paul and uh, I, I tried some of his um, the finishes he was doing with different uh, craft breweries in America um, I sampled a few of those so I think I think we we could have another another cracker for an episode next week yeah look I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it so thank you very much John for helping with the hosting uh, as always if you enjoyed Pleasure. the show please do subscribe to our YouTube channel or subscribe to the magazine and these podcasts will be available on your favorite podcast provider and on YouTube going forward. Um, We look forward to talking to you next week. Thank you. Good night, all. Good night.